Good morning. Welcome to a beautiful Palm Sunday that God has given to us. It was that day in history when Jesus came into Jerusalem. He was welcomed by his disciples, not so much by several others, but they were proclaiming him as Lord and Savior, Messiah. Although he wasn't the Messiah they were really hoping for. Many were hoping for a Messiah that would take Rome out of the picture. That's not exactly what happened. He brought to them something much, much greater, much, much more than the liberation from a tyrant. He brought them liberation from sin. That's what we celebrate today, and I'm glad you're here that we can celebrate those things together. A few weeks ago, uh, Deb, my wife, went out to Washington, D.C. to visit our son-in-law and daughter and the grandkids. One of the grandkids, the youngest, was having a birthday later on in that week, and we don't often get the chance to spend uh, birthdays with our grandkids, so Deb was able to go out and do that. I'm glad that she was. But while she was gone, I thought, well, I'll take care of some husbandly duties around the house, and I'll make sure the house is nice when she gets back home. And one of the things I did was to wash the sheets on the bed. Problem was, Deb had been gone, so her side wasn't dirty. It was just my side that was dirty. So I thought, if my half is dirty, I'll just set the washing machine to half a load. Now, you know that's not true. The machine has no idea which side was dirty. It couldn't make that decision at all. It just didn't do it. Have you ever, ever found yourself trying to figure out, trying to determine what is really true as, as opposed to what is false? Our culture does a really good job of presenting us with all kinds of details. Sometimes they would call those facts. But we have to thread through those to determine what is really true and what is not. In the 18th chapter of John, the 37th verse, Jesus stands bound before the Roman governor Pilate. The Jews had, had arrested him and were presenting him to, to Pilate because of treason, they said. In verse, uh, in verse 37, it, it says, Pilate said, so you are a king. And Jesus responded, you say that I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. The Bible doesn't make us clear about the attitude of Pilate. But it seems as though there was some contempt in his voice, at least in the writing, when he said, what is truth? That's how he responded to Jesus when he said, he is the truth. He said, what is truth? Here's a man that was so torn, so uh, uh, confused by the, the pluralism of the Roman and the Greek cultures, uh, the many gods that they have, that he wondered, is it possible to even know if there is a, such a thing as truth? And now we see what truth really meant for Pilate. He stands before the crowd and he announces that this Jesus that you have condemned is guilty, is not guilty of, of any wrongdoing, and in the very next breath, he turns him over to the Jews for crucifixion. You see, Pilate, for him, uh, truth was a matter of what worked, a, a pragmatic solution to a problem that was uncomfortable for him to face. What does truth look like today? Is it, as a preacher from the past, Frederick Price said, the Bible says that he has left us an example that we should follow in his steps. That's the reason why I drive a Rolls Royce. I'm following in the steps of Jesus. I don't know that Jesus ever drove a Rolls Royce. I don't think that he did. Is that where we find truth? I don't think so. I think we find truth in the statement of a man by the name of Abdu Murray, who was a Muslim and converted to Christianity, he is now the president of apologetics at the Embrace the Truth Ministries. He said, I am aware of hundreds of conversions of Muslims to Christianity. He said, I personally know 30 or 40 people who were uh, in Islam and now have made that conversion to Christianity. Is that truth? I believe it is. I believe that's true truth. In chapter 48 of Quest 52, Mark Moore asked the question, why did Jesus have to die? 
In this, he discusses the atonement of Jesus, why he died. What is atonement? Atonement is to atone for something, to make restitution, to pay, uh, to pay the fine, to cover the bill, to clear the debt. That's the idea of restitution. Simply speaking, Jesus died in order to make restitution to his Father God for our sins. That's why he died, to pay the price. The other morning, Deb and I were having breakfast at Huddle House. There was another family in there from church. I'll not tell you who, but as we were preparing to leave, they left before we did. And as we were preparing to go, I asked for the ticket and said, your, your ticket has already been paid. Somebody already paid for your breakfast. I thought, oh, that's, that's great. And I thought, I bet that doesn't happen to Tyson a whole lot. With this gang, the, the bill would be 150 bucks. <laughs> Tyson, if you had less people, it would be easier to pay your bill. I'm telling you now. Get those kids growing up and out of the house. Yeah. Jesus made restitution to the Father for our sins. This is one of the greatest theological truths in all of Scripture. That's why this morning I want to talk to you about theology. Because theology is truth. It's about truth. And there it is. Eyes begin to glaze over. You drop your pens and your pencil. You begin to nod off even though you're not asleep yet. I understand that. Somebody said, you are going to preach a sermon on theology after last week's sermon on sex? Come on, can't you do any better than that? I'm sorry, it's the best I can do. Um, coffee is available in the commons as you go out if you're having trouble staying awake before you drive home. So grab a cup there. Theology, I know, is not the most exciting topic in Scripture. It's not the most exciting topic that we could cover. I believe it's worth it. I believe that we should be looking at it. Peter said, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope, your belief as a believer, always be ready. Be prepared to explain that. You see, worship and theology are not mutually exclusive. I think they are linked together very, very well. The author of the book of Hebrews, he, he says we need to move into a deeper understanding, a deeper knowledge of the word. And he said, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely, we don't need to start again with the fundamentals. We don't need to go back to basic teachings that we learned many times in Sunday school or, or when we were kids in VBS. Why do we need to repeat that over again? We need to go deeper into his word, grow deep in the knowledge of Jesus. What is theology? What is theology? It is the systematic articulation of the knowledge of God. It is like like taking the manifold truths of God and putting them in a sack and we take them out and we devour them one at a time. We might ask, to whom does theology belong? Does it, does it belong to Bible college seminarians? Does it belong to preachers? Does it belong to the elders? Maybe we should ask the question, to whom does the knowledge of God belong? It belongs to you. It belongs to the church. It belongs to all of us. So today I hope to convince you that we all need to be theologians that we are students of the word. Why do we need to do that? First of all, we need to be theologians so that we might confess what is true. At St. John's University in Minnesota, someone had put this graffiti on one of the walls of the school and it said, Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? And they replied, you are the eschatological manifestation of the ground of our being, the kerygma in which we find the ultimate meaning of our interpersonal relationships. And Jesus said, what? <laughs> now, that's one way to confess what is true about Jesus, but there are simpler and clearer ways, and Jesus did that for us. John proclaimed in 1 John, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes, and we touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. 
This one who is life was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and we proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. It is though John is bringing together all the human faculties and saying to the hearers, the story that you are about to hear is true. The names have not been changed because there is only one who is truly innocent. The Christian message, folks, is about that which is true. John uses the word truth or derivative of the word truth over 50 times in its gospel. The other gospel writers believed in the truth that they wrote about. And Jesus himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. What kind of truth was Jesus? Was he truth merely for his day, for his culture, for his society, for his environment? No, Jesus declared he is the absolute universal truth to which all people must obey and submit. He is the exclusive truth. He said, no other truth by which people may come to know God exists except in me. Yet to make that statement today, the world bristles and it recoils at such a statement. The world would say, how can anyone say there is such a thing as truth? Or that any one truth claim is is greater than or more correct than anyone else's. One person said, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Uh, Contradictory statement in itself because he was making an absolute statement there. He said, it's a matter of personal preference, a matter of personal taste. Whatever you define it to be is what truth is, correct? Josh McDowell, uh, an author from the 70s and 80s, great uh, theologian, great speaker, He took his 13-year-old daughter, his 17-year-old son, and his son's girlfriend to go see the movie Schindler's List. That movie came out in 1993. If you know the movie, you know it's a story about a man, Liam Neeson plays the lead character, who is at work trying to save as many Jews as possible from the concentration camps by having them work in his factory. And so McDowell picks up the conversation by saying, as we left the theater, we're surrounded by a somber crowd, many of whom are commenting on the atrocities inflicted upon the Jews by the Nazis. McDowell turns to his son, Sean, and he says, do you believe the Holocaust was wrong, morally wrong? And he answered, yes. But now now he pursues the matter. He writes, almost everyone walking out of that theater would say the Holocaust was wrong. But what basis would they have for making that judgment could they answer why it was wrong mcdowell goes on to say that most people in america subscribe to a view of morality called cultural ethics in other words they believe that whatever is acceptable in that culture is moral if the majority of people say a thing is right then it's right right that's why many americans he said Uh, say that abortion is okay because the majority of americans and congress and the supreme court said that it must be okay, right? And thank goodness they changed that last year. Now, the problem is this. If this is true, if, if the majority of people define what morality is, then how can we say that the murdering or the aborting of 6 million Jews in the Holocaust was wrong? In fact, the Nazis offered that very same argument at the trials in Nuremberg. They actually said, how can you come from another culture and condemn what we did when our culture said that it is acceptable? Fortunately, the world court said, no, you're wrong. There is an authority higher than you who has already defined what is right and wrong. 
Paul understood the impact that that would have upon the culture when he told Timothy, a time is coming, and folks, it's here today, when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires. They will look for teachers who will tell them what their itching ears, their desiring ears want to hear. They'll reject the truth. They will chase after half-truths and lies, stories, and myths. Paul told Timothy, your greatest responsibility is to preach the true truth, the message of truth that's entrusted to believers. Why? Because it's a message that can, does, and will change lives. Because it's based on the unchanging, the immutable, perfect truth of God's word. Paul called it good teaching. In other words, sound doctrine is the word that we would use, the phrase we would use. But Paul warned Timothy, not everyone would listen. In verse 3, again, a time will come and is now here when men will not put up with sound doctrine. They don't want absolute truth. They want flexible truth. They want a truth that they can insert into their own ideas, their own way of living, their own preconceived notions about how to live and make that truth. Christianity may call that a synchristic theology. I'll take a little bit of New Testament Christianity, maybe some of the Old Testament. I'll take some Hinduism, maybe a little bit from the, uh, from the Islam faith. I'll take some New Age. I'll roll all that together in a synchristic ball, and that is my theology because it has what I want, and I have jettisoned what I do not want. That's how a lot of people live. Tyson last week said, the world is not listening to him. Well, that's not entirely true, but it can be mostly true depending on the things we're talking about. But Paul is not talking about the world. He's talking about the church. Have we lost our grip on the truth in the church? Have we lost that? Our truth about, uh, tr truth about God. In 2016, the Barney Institute said that 80% of all Americans are concerned about the morality, the direction of our nation. They're concerned about morality. The problem is... Who defines what morality is? And that's the issue. 41% of practicing Christians say the only truth one can know is whatever is right for one's own life. In other words, truth is self-determined. 47% of practicing Christians said every culture needs to determine what is acceptable morality for their own people. Christians have, for the most part, stopped caring and learning about theology. Now, that doesn't mean that input has stopped, but what are we, what are we bringing in? What's the content of that input? I, I, I fear that, that much of Christianity is being stripped clean of our protective theology, of our protective theological clothing. Some examples in, we have made a shift in the emphasis from what is true to what works. Now, I praise God, I would not put this church in that, in that group. When Tyson preaches, when Ben and Ben preach, and prayerfully when I do, we're preaching the truth. I pray that's what happens. But there's also been a, a church growth that has shifted from theology to methodology. We're concerned about growing, but we're not really concerned about what we're growing on. Ministers oftentimes will hold up the CEO of a, of a, a well-run organization, a successful business, and say, I want to be like that guy. And some church leaders say, we need a preacher who can manage people well. That's the kind of folks we want at the helm. It doesn't just stop there. It's also a problem for some believers. We have such a focus on ourselves. Advertisers will tell us that what Christians want today is to know how to be happy, financially prosperous, and how to lose weight while being filled with the Holy Spirit at the same time. Go to a bookstore. Look at a Christian bookstore and see what the popular books are. Titles such as God's Key to Health and Happiness. 
do I have to be me? You can prevent a nervous breakdown, feeling good about feeling bad, how to become your own best self. A former popular TV evangelist from his pulpit one time said, the problem with mankind isn't sin, it's a low self-esteem. We need to esteem ourselves more highly. The use of the word sin has been canceled in his congregation. Now, is there a positive side to following cultural trends? There, there can be. If we take the Word of God and make it more relevant to our audience, easier to understand, easier to listen to, and, and to practice, then the church can grow, and the church can grow well. But you have to be careful how far we push that. When a church structures its message only for the felt need of the audience, it becomes self-focused. And when Christianity focuses on itself... The result is theology becomes therapy. The search for righteousness is replaced with the search for happiness. Holiness is replaced with wholeness. And truth is replaced by feeling. And God's sovereignty is replaced by whatever it takes to have a good day. We're called to be theologians so we can confess what is true. We're also called to be theologians so that we might reflect upon what is true. Reflecting, what does that mean? It means to struggle with the truths about God as they, as they uh, uh, relate to each other and then as they relate to our life as well. Bob Emmers was the editor of the Orange County Register. Some time ago he wrote and said, I can call myself a religious person but not always charitable, but I wish I were. I think the world would be a far better place if people everywhere didn't try to kill each other so often. That's a profound statement, isn't it? <laughs> he said, I believe there is a God, although I take no interest in the debates over what form he takes. I believe there's a God, but I'm not concerned about who he is. Imagine using that same reasoning in our everyday life. You know, I, I have a boss, but I really don't care who he is, and I don't care about what he wants me to do. Yeah, I, I know there are traffic laws out there, and I really ought to learn those, and I suppose they're pretty good, but I'm just not really interested in obeying those. How long would you survive? See, I'm not talking about paychecks. I'm not talking about traffic accidents. We're talking about the most important questions that face us in life, the existence and the identity of the God of the universe. We're talking about the ultimate destiny of human souls. Those are the things that matter. Paul is writing to Titus concerning church leaders, and he says, He, that church leader, must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by what? By sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Church leaders, church members, we are to hold on. Hold on to what? Their Christian experience? Are we to hold on to that feeling inside that God loves us? No, not as first importance. Paul said, you hold on to the objective truth about the identity of God and how he works in our life. One of the greatest concerns about the modern church today is that we are more likely to share Christianity, explain Christianity on the basis of a personal experience rather than on the basis of truth, on theology. You see, if all we have to share with people is, you should become a Christian because of what God has done for me, we're in trouble. One of the great things about the church today is that it's become convinced that Christianity is not just some mental assent to an, a, a doctrinal position, but that it is a matter of having a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's a great thing. But many Christians think that all that matters is the experience. Doctrinal statements seem to be 
hard to understand. They're impractical. I really don't care about them. I'm not interested in those. David Wells wrote, the question that is posed to the outsider from Christians is not whether Christ is objectively real, but simply whether the experience is appealing. Whether it seems to have worked, whether having it will bring one inside the group and give connections to others. If all we can say to others is, look, you should be a Christian because of what he's done for me, what do you do when someone else says, well, I believe the Book of Mormon is true because of a burning in my bosom, in my gut. You see, the Mormons believe that validating or verifying the word of the Book of Mormon comes from a feeling inside of them. What do you do? You, you have nothing to say unless you can give them the truth because their experience or your experience is not necessarily better than the other. Theology is not born out of an experience. Our spiritual experience exists as a result of, a result of our theology, the truth which God has revealed to us in his word. A five-year-old boy uh, uh, was asked by his father if he knew that God really loved him. The little boy said, yes. And dad asked why. He said, because he died on the cross for me. And dad said, yes, yes, that, that's, it, that's right. But then the son looked at dad and asked him an incredible question. He said, dad, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Couldn't he have just forgiven me and my sins without having to die? In that simple question, that little boy was asking about justification, propitiation. Uh, he, he was asking about substitutionary atonement. And thank goodness we can answer that question in a lot simpler terms than those. The young boy was saying, Dad, teach me theology. I want to know about God. I want to know about his word. I want to know how they work together. God help us if we ever get to the place where we're so satisfied with religious experiences that we stop asking theological questions. I hope you're digging into God's word to find those. Our experience becomes much more profound the deeper we get into the Word of God. We're to be theologians so we can reflect and grow and understand that which is true. And last of all, and you're thinking, man, we're to be theologians so that we might live according to that which is true. In the 8th chapter, chapter of John, Jesus is speaking to religious leaders. And he said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from inhibitions? No. Free to do what feels right or good? No. But free to live right. Jesus told the religious leaders of the day, you are slaves to sin. Their response was to bend down, pick up stones, and get ready to stone Jesus. Why? Because they did not believe, they did not see, they did not hear, they did not understand the truth that Jesus is true truth. Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 4, 1 Timothy, by saying, Watch your life and theology, your doctrine, closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul is explaining to us that good theology and life are inextricably bound together. Good theology, godly living go hand in hand. I, I know they're intimidating realities, but we have to persevere in them both. We need to do that. People can live good moral lives without theology they just don't have a very good reason to do so you see a, a person that doesn't have a theology can be a moral individual but when that morality is is challenged by our culture then it's really easy to back up and say well my reality or my my morality is fluid 
and therefore something challenges my, uh, uh, my belief system, I can change my belief system to agree with the culture. Unfortunately, there's also a lot of people who have a really good theology that live like the devil. doesn't make much uh, sense to them. In God's economy, living right is the consistent result of a growing relationship, a growing understanding of truth about him. And we, we see that evidence in John's gospel when he says, when Jesus comes, he shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. What does godly living and good theology look like when they're brought together? Well, it doesn't look like 18th century atheist and philosopher Voltaire. Maybe you've heard that name before. Voltaire said that it took centuries to build Christianity, but he would show how one Frenchman could destroy it in 50 years. So he sat down and dipped his pen in the ink of unbelief in order to destroy Christianity. 20 years after Voltaire died, the Geneva Bible Society purchased his home to use it as a printing place for Bibles. Later, it became the headquarters of the Foreign Bible Society. Today, the Bible is still a bestseller. There was a time not long ago when the entire six-volume set of Voltaire's writing sold for 90 cents. Just before his death, he said, I wish I had never been born. Here was a man who never achieved a sense of moral obligation to a higher authority. That's not what godly living looks like. It does, when you bring good theology and godly living together, it looks like this. It looks like Ben Merrill. Ben Merrill served in the preaching ministry for almost 75 years. He passed away last year. Tyson and I had the, the privilege of being able to attend that service. Ben Merrill preached in Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, and California. He was used by God to build big, strong, growing churches. He gave himself to God's service for a lifetime. He would mentor ministers, young and old, and, and, and affirm them in their, in their work. The last few years of his life, Ben struggled to come up two or three steps to preach. A lot of you men who were at our stake night a couple of years ago heard Ben and his grandson, Matt, speak together that evening. Even in the last few years when Ben would get up to the pulpit, it was hard for him to do so. But I tell you what, when he got behind the pulpit and he opened up God's Word, he preached with the power and the enthusiasm of a 30-year-old. It was amazing to hear and see. He was a student of the Word, a life lived beyond reproach, a coming together of good theology and godly living. They go hand in hand. To call ourselves Christians means to avail ourselves to the truth that we find in Scripture and learn them again and again. The psalmist said, I have hidden your words in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Theology is about truth. And God has commanded us to confess that which is true, to reflect upon that which is true, and to live according to that which is true. So, how do you become a theologian? Well, come into Tyson's office and he'll give you a sheet of paper and he'll sign this and say, you are a theologian. No, no, you can't do it that way. Get involved in Sunday school. Get involved in a Bible study. Read the scripture. Spend time learning. Turn off the TV set and, and, and read some good books. Go home to your Christian bookshelf that you've got there in the house and move your seven different translations of the Bible to one side and then move Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth or whatever you've got over to the other side and then put in there, read first, and then put in there these books. 
Evidences that demand a verdict, book one and two by Josh McDowell. Leaves from the notebook of a, of a tamed cynic by Reinhold Niebuhr. Anything by A.W. Tozer, his book, Faith Beyond Reason, The Attributes of God, book one and two. They're, they're awesome, awesome books to read. Read the old book by Frank Morrison, Who Moved the Stone? Read Dr. Jack Cottrell's books on baptism and the Holy Spirit, biblical studies. Read the book by David Kinneman, the president of the Barna Research Group, the book called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. Read the book Faithfully Different by Natasha Crane. The staff is going through that book right now. Read the book Keeping Your Kids on God's Side by Natasha Crane. 40 conversations you can have with your kids. I would say this book is a, a, a must-read uh, primer or primer for anybody in Christianity. 40 great topics are discussed and answered. How to defend your faith, how to know Jesus is real, how to know that the Bible is real. It's a great book to read. At the end of this service, I'll be back in the New Commons area. I have many of these books there. And if you have a theological question, I'll try to help answer that. I, I can't guarantee that I can answer every theological question, but I'll do what I can. And Tyson will do the same thing for you. Some time ago, I, I heard a statement by one of the best 20th century theologians, Tammy Faye Baker. She said, the Christian life is so wonderful that I would believe it even if it weren't true. <laughs> Thousands look to Baker for, for examples of good theology, and, and they look to her believing that is it. What an embarrassment to God. That kind of Christianity can never stand the test of time or adversity. We've not been called to syrupy religious experiences. We've been, called, we've been called to sound doctrine and sound theology. Are you persevering in it? And why should you? Because Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news about Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because Peter said, there is salvation in no one else. God has given us no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. This morning I pray that we work at becoming better theologians. I don't know that any of us, I know that we won't, none of us will have all the answers. But we need to search for them. We need to look for them. And we need to understand why we believe what we believe. Why do we believe that? Because the Bible calls us to be a, to be a disciple, a learner. This morning, we also have an opportunity for you to become a disciple of Christ. To confess his name. To declare him your Lord and Savior. If, not, if you have not been baptized into Christ, to be baptized into him. We're going to see some examples of that here in just a moment. And maybe as, a, uh, as an immersed believer who's been attending here for a while, you would like to partner with us in ministry just to simply come and say, I, I want to be a part of what's going on here. If these are needs of your, or if you have a prayer concern or a question, please come. Tyson will be here, I'll be here, and, and we'd, we'd love to have you come and, and share with what God has put upon your heart. Would you stand? We'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for an opportunity to deal with, with a topic that... Um, that may not be the most exciting thing that comes down the pike, but Father, I think it is. I think it is exciting to uncover those 
deep and wonderful truths about who you are and what you have done. Father, your perfect plan for us, the perfect heaven that you have created, the perfect sacrifice that Jesus was for us. Father, the perfect way of, of finding salvation through him for a perfect message given to us by a perfect Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that your message through the Holy Spirit will speak to the hearts and the ears of those in this room. And if there's one here today that needs to make a choice, a decision, to proclaim you as their Lord and Savior, Father, may they do so. May they follow the examples that are being set here today by these young men. And Father, may that, uh, may that radiate through this audience. I pray in Jesus' name.